Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everybody. I'm I'm really happy that you clapped when we were coming in because I was going to encourage you to give a clap, so it saves me giving one action. I am Dr Grace Lorden. I am an Associate Professor here at the London School of Economics and also the Founding Director of the Inclusion Initiative. I'm also your chair this evening, so I'm going to make a promise to you that I won't speak too long so that people in the room get to ask questions, which I think is super important. But I'm going to ask you to make a promise to me that when you do ask a question, you keep it short, because I want to hear as many voices as possible, because I know there's lots of things we might want to ask Rachel. I'm going to also give Rachel a very short introduction. So Rachel, welcome back to the LSE as one of our alumni, our, our economics alumni. Rachel Rees is the Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer and has proudly served as Member of Parliament for Leeds West since 2010. If the polls keep going as they are, she will be the Chancellor, our next Chancellor and our first woman Chancellor, which makes me incredibly excited to have her here. So if you clapped, you have to vote. Rachel worked as an economist for the Bank of England. She has previously served as Shadow Minister for the Cabinet Office and as Shadow Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Why we're here today is because of Rachel's passionate, powerful and inspiring new book, The Women Who Made Modern Economics, which tells the untold stories of some of the women whose work, dreams and ideas have shaped modern economics and the way we think about the economy, and depressingly, who were overlooked for it until tonight. So the very first question for you, Rachel, is why did you write the book and was there a particular moment in your career where you felt that it deserved to be written? Well, thank you very much uh, for that introduction, Grace. So when I was appointed two and a half years ago as uh, Shadow Chancellor, I started thinking about who are the people who have influenced me and might inspire me in the role that I was taking on. And that also led me to sort of realise how few women I had studied as an economist. I mean, in my undergraduate and my master's degree, I was never lectured by a woman in economics. And there was only one textbook that we used, Macroeconomics and the Wage Bargain, by Wendy Carlin and and David Soskis, so co-authored by a woman. And I started to sort of question whether it was the case that there'd just been no women in economics or whether the women who had been there had been overlooked. And I started sort of digging into the stories of some of the women who have shaped modern economics. And some of them I had heard of, but others, you know, I'm ashamed to say I hadn't. And I very much feel that every generation of women stands on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And so I wanted to tell some of these stories, but also then set out how in their different ways they have influenced me and how their ideas influence me as Shadow Chancellor and and I hope will influence me as as Chancellor of the Exchequer if um, Labour win the next election as well. So that's why I wrote this book, to rewrite these women back into history, but also to give people a better understanding of where my ideas uh, have come from and who has shaped me as, as an economist and as a politician. So one of the questions that I received before coming tonight was about an article in the Financial Times where they alleged some plagiarism in your book. So before we move on with the rest of the interview, do you want to comment on on the article? Yeah, well, no, thanks for asking me about that. There were some issues with the drafting and the reference in the book, and I put my hands up, you know, to that, and I'm working with the publishers now to to rectify some of that around the drafting and also, you know, how things were referenced in the bibliography. 
So here at LSE, Beatrice Webb, obviously as our co-founder, carries a special place in our heart, and you dedicate an entire chapter in your book to Beatrice Webb. So can you tell us why she's so relevant to you, particularly with what's going on in the economy today? Yes, I guess so. Uh, Beatrice Webb would be, I think, thought first and foremost as a sort of, you know, social campaigner, political campaigner. But she was also, you know, a serious uh, economist who, you know, published a number of works. But in terms of her influence on modern economics, I guess the key thing would be the work that she did in the Minority Report to the Poor Law Commission, which in many ways was the start of the modern welfare state. You know, we credit another former LSE guy, Beveridge, with the modern welfare state. But he directly referenced Beatrice Webb when he did that work and said to her, it's all in the minority report. So much of the report that he did on the five evils um, was based on the work that she did uh, in the minority report. And you know, she was appointed to this commission on the poor law. But in the end, they couldn't agree, and a majority and a minority was published. And Beatrice Webb thought that the ideas that she put in her minority report would capture the imagination of a nation. And when it didn't immediately catch on, she formed a magazine, The Crusade, to take forward that work and travelled around the country. Uh, then the magazine, The New Statesman, followed, and, of course, the Fabian Society as well. So, you know, Beatrice Webb was an economist, she was a great thinker, but she was also a campaigner and one of the many women in the book who not just came up with interesting ideas, but wanted to see them turned into practice. And I guess that's what I really admire about Beatrice Webb. Well, thank you for helping her live on in this book. It's absolutely fantastic. So you talk about male bias in policymaking in the book. Um, one of the examples you give is universal credit being paid to the main earner and not the main carer, which you argue, argue against. Why should this change? And what would the effect be for households here? Yeah, well, it's sort of it's a case of it changing back yep. because it has until the um, early 2010s always been the case that the family allowance, child benefit, tax credits was always paid to the main carer and not the main earner. But there's always been a big political debate about it. So in the chapter about Beatrice Webb, I also spoke about um, a really remarkable woman called Eleanor Rathbone, who was an independent member of Parliament. She wasn't affiliated to any political party. But she wrote a book in the 1920s called The Disinherited Family. And in that book, she makes the argument that women are disinherited from the family income because the work that they do is largely un remunerated. So the work they do looking after the home, the work they do bringing up children. And she argued that a family allowance should be paid directly to the mother for the work that they do in the home for the family. And this was eventually introduced actually just at the end of the, the Second World War before the Beveridge Report and Clement Attlee implementing uh, that. But there was a big debate and the ministers at the time said it would be much simpler to pay this family allowance to the main earner through the paycheck rather than to the main carer. And Eleanor Rathbone threatened to vote against her very idea when the bill came to Parliament unless the government relented and paid it to the main carer, which they eventually did so as not to you know, have that embarrassment of her voting against it. And you know, she refers to it as the proudest thing she ever achieved and the payment to the mother was a key part of it. 
And then when Barbara Castle introduced the first ever child benefit, again, she had a debate with the Treasury that it would be much easier to pay it to the main earner, not the main carer. Barbara Castle won that debate. Then when Tony Blair and Gordon Brown introduced tax credits when they were in government, again, the argument was made much easier to pay it through the paycheck. But Harriet Harman, Yvette Cooper, Tessa Jowell pushed back against that and said it was important that it went to the main carer. And these arguments have always been won until Universal Credit came along. And George Osborne, David Cameron, and Duncan Smith didn't um, accept that argument. And so I argue in the book that that's sort of a redistribution from women to, to men because it is still mainly the women who do the most of the caring work still and it's something that I am determined to look at if, if Labour get into power because I would like to see that paid directly to the carer, usually the woman. Can you get clear on the benefits of that? So, so I guess the pushback is about the cost because it's more administratively easy to go to the paycheck and I'm, I'm with you but in, when you're kind of advocating for a policy what are the benefits that you see would accrue to women? Yeah, so I think a couple of things. You know, the whole point of these allowances, you know, whether it is, you know, the child tax credits or the universal credit, you know, is to support a family. Uh, And the person who is doing the most of that work is the main carer. And so I think that money should go to them. But also one of the things that I think the last Labour government introduced was uh, a gender impact assessment of all policies. Now, the Conservatives got rid of that when they came into power in 2010. So you can no longer see uh, when the Treasury does its budget and the autumn statement like it will in a couple of weeks' time, the gender impact of, of policies. But that redistribution from women to men you know, it clearly means there is less money going into the pockets of women. And, you know, I I think that often different decisions would be made if the money went to the person doing the caring work in the home. So, you know, I still think that that would be uh, the better way of doing it. And I think the evidence for that is on your side, that men and women make different purchasing decisions and also bargaining in the home changes, depending on who gets the transfer. Yeah, look, I mean, like in some families, it makes not the blindest bit of difference, but in some families, it really does. And, you know, we saw, you know, during the pandemic, you know, issues around domestic violence come to the fore. Again, control is an important part of that. So for some families, this can make a huge and crucial difference. And I think it is important that public policy takes that into account. It made me smile. So in, in my first degree in economics, we had a professor who refused to teach any other macroeconomics aside from Keynesian economics. So it, reading about it in your book was fantastic because um, as credited by John Robinson and its relevance for policymakers today, for people who don't know much about Keynesian economics, I thought it would be nice for Rachel to discuss how as chancellor she would rely on this particular brand of economics in setting policies. Uh, right. Uh, so, <laughs> I sort of feel like I have to get up with a whiteboard or something. Uh, well, so, you know, Keynesian economics is about looking at the demand side, whereas more classical economics is looking at the, well, the supply side of the economy and looking about how in equilibrium demand and supply must uh, marry up, but also how governments, and this is, I guess, a crucial insight, how governments can have a direct impact on aggregate demand through uh, tax spending borrowing policy and the argument being that when the economy is operating below its productive potential you can boost aggregate demand either through tax cuts or spending uh, increases I think Keynes would say that um, spending increases would have a bigger effect because of the multiplier effect but then similarly when an economy is operating above its 
productive capacity, you can take some money out of the economy by increasing taxes or cutting spending. And, and for a long time, you know, from sort of after the Second World War or during the Second World War until the sort of mid-1970s, this idea was in the ascendancy. And obviously, Keynesianism is associated with John Maynard Keynes, but there were other people as well working with Keynes to develop some of those ideas. Uh, And one of those people was Joan Robinson, and she was part of a group of economists called the Cambridge Circus, operating out of Cambridge University, who would meet every week and discuss Keynes's ideas and then feedback directly, meeting with him every week to feedback on his ideas to influence his, his next book. And all of them, including Joan Robinson, took forward various Keynesian ideas. And Joan Robinson's key insights were around the labour market. And she was the first economist to make an argument for um, a minimum wage. And she argued that the idea of, the mon- of monopoly could apply to labour markets and was often um, in existence in, in labour markets. So the idea of a monopoly is usually that you have one seller of a good and because they dominate the market, they can set prices uh, and quality and standards. And she applied that to labour markets and said often in a place you may have just one big employer and as a result they can set wages and terms and conditions and that the bargaining power is all with the employer rather than with the workers. And And so she argued for stronger trade unions and a national minimum wage to give greater power to working people. And she's the first economist to make that argument. She was also one of the earliest economists to do work looking at the the gender pay gap, um, following in the footsteps of of Mary Paley Marshall, uh, an earlier economist who did work uh, in that area. And it is quite interesting that, you know, a lot of issues around gender in economics have been ignored. I mean, it's brilliant to see Claudia Golding getting the Nobel Prize for just this work, but for a long time, issues around gender and economics have been ignored, and it's taken women in economics, like Mary Paley Marshall, like Joan Robinson, like Janet Yellen in the States today, to really put those uh, issues front and centre of the economic agenda in a way that they just wouldn't have been unless you had these women shaping modern economics. Well, speaking of women who shaped modern economics, a quote in your book is, Anna did all of the work and I got most of the recognition. So in your book, you try to address the blatant credit-taking of Milton Freeman for work that wasn't his own, including the 1976 Nobel Prize, recognising her as the mother of monetarism, the other being his wife, Rose Friedman, who was also ignored. So, of course, the importance of monetarism links directly to how governments manage inflation, a topic that many economists are very taken with at the moment. What would you have done differently if you had complete power on the policy leaders from the start of the most recent cost of living crisis? Yeah, so I'll say something about Anna Schwartz uh, in a moment and just sort of build on on what you've said, uh, Grace. But first of all, I I think that it is really important that the Bank of England uh, have the independence to make decisions around monetary policy. I think it was one of the greatest achievements of the last Labour government to give that operational independence uh, to the central bank, to take the politics out of those monthly decisions on interest rates and one of the mistakes one of the mistakes that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng made uh, last year such a short time (laughs) yeah they were busy at least one of the mistakes that they made was not just that you had a load of unfunded tax cuts that spooked markets in their mini budget uh, last September but it was also the undermining of economic institutions in the lead up to that so the undermining of the Bank of England and the criticisms uh, of the bank during the 
the Conservative leadership contest, then not allowing the Office of Budget Responsibility to do a forecast alongside the mini budget, and then you know sacking the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, and all of those, along with the unfunded tax cuts, caused markets to to take fright. So I, I'm not going to sort of fall into the trap of sort of saying what the Bank of England should do, because I think actually monetary policy is more effective uh, in the hands of an independent central bank. However, I do think that there is more that government could have done to soften the impact of high inflation, particularly of high energy bills on families and, and pensioners. And so, you know, right back, even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, myself and Keir Starmer and Ed Miliband were making the case for a proper windfall tax on the huge profits the energy companies were enjoying, because even before that invasion on the sort of expectation of it, prices were going through the roof. Now, eventually, Rishi Sunak did introduce the energy profits levy, but it was a sort of a shadow of what it could have been because it had so many loopholes in it that some of the biggest energy companies didn't pay a a penny in windfall tax because they used the loopholes to get out of it. We think we could have raised something like £10 billion more that we could have put directly into easing some of those pressures on on family budgets. I, I guess the other thing is that you know, there's one and a half million people in next year who will be coming to the end of a fixed-term mortgage deal and will be having to remortgage. And because of the increase in interest rates, some of which the Conservatives, I think, bear direct responsibility for because of the sort of premium that's been put on uh, borrowing in the UK because of their decisions last year, means that people are paying so much more for their mortgages. So, you know, economic stability, fiscal responsibility has got to be at the centre of any um, serious macroeconomic policy. But then also there's always choices to be made about, you know, who to tax and who to shield. We would have taxed the energy companies a bit more to help families with their finances a little bit more. But let me just say something else about um, Anna Anna Schwartz, because you you used that uh, great quote. I mean, I I expect that everybody here would have um, heard of Milton Friedman. And given what an audience we're talking to, most of you would have heard of Anna Schwartz. But I expect that uh, if you ask most people who Anna Schwartz is they wouldn't know, but I expect there would be a pretty decent knowledge uh, of who Milton Friedman was, because Milton Friedman received the Nobel Prize for his contribution to economics. But his contribution to economics was mainly based on a book that he co-authored with Anna Schwartz, and yet the Nobel Prize was awarded to Friedman and not to her. And Grace gave that great quote that when he was asked about their partnership, he said it was an almost perfect partnership in that Anna did all of the work and he got almost all of the credit. I mean, perfect for him, maybe not so much for Anna Schwartz. And, you know, you've already said, Grace, that, you know, I'm a sort of a Keynesian, uh, which is true. Uh, I don't agree with a lot of the things that Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz have argued for, um, but I still believe that she does certainly deserves you know, half of the credit for the, the work that she co-authored with him. And if you don't know who Anna Schwartz is, can I encourage you to think about buying a copy of Rachel's book, which you will be signing <laughs> after the event, should I forget at the end. Um, are there any other lessons we can take from the book regarding policies that you would bring in um, as Chancellor of the UK? Yes, I mean, a number of different areas. Um, in one of the earlier chapters, I spoke about um, a, a great economist called Mary Paley Marshall. And on my way here this evening, I, I walked past the Marshall Building, uh, which I think is presumably named after Alfred Marshall, who was Mary Paley Marshall's husband. 
Um, but Mary Paley Marshall herself was a distinguished economist who wrote the first ever textbook on industrial economics. But in a sort of similar story to um, Anna Schwartz, she has been effectively written out of our economic history. And sadly, that was in large part by her husband. He took her book out of print, even while it was still selling and still popular. And later in life, he relied on her heavily for the research and stuff that went into his work. And John Maynard Keynes said, you can never think about the work of Alfred Marshall without thinking about the contribution that Mary Paley Marshall made. And yet she is very rarely referenced, even less so, put on the front cover of those books. And so she is somebody who I hugely admire. And actually her work on industrial economics is really interesting and very, very relevant and pertinent for today because she was one of the first, probably the first economist to write about clusters of firms and why it is that firms in similar industries co-locate in the, in the same area because of uh, you know, access to, to skills, uh, informal knowledge sharing and networks that meant that ceramics went to Stoke and the woolen industry to, to West Yorkshire and then the infrastructure to then get those goods to, to market. So there's no reason why you couldn't have a ceramics firm in Leeds, but they didn't go to Leeds because the you know, canal to get the goods to market, the skilled workers in ceramics were in Stoke. And I think those areas are very relevant today when we think about some of the industries that we've got an opportunity to grow in the future in the UK, like carbon capture and storage, floating offshore wind, tidal energy, uh, where we can benefit and develop some of those theories that Mary Paley Marshall spoke about around clusters. So she's a key influence. I've already spoken a little bit about Joan Robinson, and I've committed that an incoming Labour government will turn the national minimum wage into the first ever real living uh, wage if we win the next election. But also, in one of the, the last chapters of the book, I talk quite a lot about Janet Yellen, who I'm a huge admirer of, and she has smashed so many glass ceilings in economics. She was the first head of the US President's Council of Economic Advisers. She was the first female uh, head of the US Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, and now she serves as the first female uh, head of the US Treasury. And the ideas that she's taking forward, she calls a modern supply side um, economics. It's, Danny Roderick calls it sort of productivism. I'm trying to develop a sort of UK version, one that I call Securonomics. But it's this idea about building the domestic supply capacity of an economy to build more resilience into the economy, to secure good jobs and industry, and also, you know, particularly in the case of, of energy, to lower people's bills as well. And, and I take a lot of inspiration from what she's doing in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Act, uh, to build the capacity of the economy uh, to create good jobs and productivity growth in all parts of the country by attracting in business investment and new industries. Can you say something, Rachel, about the, the concerns that minimum wages in, increasing um, encourage companies to automate and to use robotics to substitute for workers, and that the government, the current government, isn't spending enough time thinking about how to capture the rents of those technologies to smooth the transition for workers who might actually be replaced, and to think about reskilling them? Yeah, I mean, look, the current problem in the UK economy is not too many workers; it's not enough yeah. people um, working. You know, since the pandemic, we are. I think almost unique amongst developed countries of having a lower participation rate now than before the pandemic. Now, a lot of that will be about some of the problems we've got in our National Health Service. We've got seven and a half million people on NHS waiting lists. <coughs>
of them of working age who should be working but are not able to but also other issues around mental health and disability that you know we need to face into and help get more people back into work um, but I agree that longer term of course there is a challenge uh, that we need to adapt to and that is through having a much more proactive uh, skills policy uh, so that the jobs of the future can be done here in Britain by workers with the skills to, to do them I, mean, I guess I'm sort of on technology, I would be more of an optimist uh, and think that jobs will be created as well as jobs lost, but it will be up to the policymakers and working with business to make sure that people in our economy have got the skills to do the jobs of the future. I mean, we have quite a low adoption rates of technology uh, in the UK, which is one of the reasons for our low levels of productivity. So I think right now we shouldn't be scared of technology in the workplace. In fact, I think it could be a real benefit in helping to boost job quality and wages as well. I'm glad you've mentioned productivity because I noticed under the current government the skills and productivity part has just become skills. So hopefully under a Labour government productivity will come back into the discussions. But I I think it is one of the reasons why the UK economy has sort of essentially flatlined these last sort of 10 or 15 uh, years because, you know, even though you've got a, a global slowdown in productivity, in the UK it's more marked than uh, elsewhere. So, you know, skills and productivity is why I've talked a lot about investment in infrastructure, reforming the planning system to try and unlock the business investment that is taking place, but more of it's taking place overseas than it is in the UK. And I want those jobs and that investment here in the UK, which is what our planning reforms, our green prosperity plan, um, our modern industrial strategy are all about. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. So I've just gotten waved to say to come to the audience for questions, so I'm going to do just that. So Nikita is here to welcome our online audience. Um, so if you're online, please do submit your questions, and I will take them in batches of three. And while Nikita is getting ready, I will go from each column, lady in red, the striped top up centre, and anybody from the, over here? The gentleman in the green top. So those three, please. Go ahead. As short as you can. Uh, I'm an alumni at the LSE and I now help companies achieve net zero, so my question will be about that. Everyone wants net zero and the question is how do you fund it? So my question is how do you fund all of these initiatives that will cost ultimately so much money that we achieve a greener and Great question. Um, yes, please. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, I'm somebody who's currently working as an economist, and I wanted to ask you, Rachel, as someone who's gone from being an economist now to a politician, what do you think of the fact there's a declining respect among politicians for economists? Like Go said, you know, we're fed up of hearing about experts. Did he have a point? Is economics, you know, becoming excessively technical and impractical for public policy? Is there a way that economists can be, become more useful in public policy making and a way for economists to re- regain uh, respect among politicians? Thanks. Fantastic. Yes, please. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for your time today. My question is, with your general election, people want to know about you. So, like, what kind of chancellor do you want to be and what's your vision for the country? In any order you would like, Rachel. Great. 
Uh, well, thanks very much for those questions. First of all, on the, the question around net zero, a good Chancellor needs to know when to say no. And I think most of my colleagues in the Shadow Cabinet would attest to the fact that I regularly say, I'm sorry, but unless we can say how something's going to be paid for, we can't do it. But a good Chancellor also needs to know when to make prudent investments for the long-term interests of the economy. And the Office of Budget Responsibility say that the costs of delaying getting to net zero by a decade will double the costs of getting there. So these investments in the industries and the jobs of the future, I think, are really, really important and a good use of money. But I've also set out a set of fiscal rules, recognising particularly where we are at the moment with interest rates, etc. And those rules are that we will not borrow for day-to-day expenditure. We will get debt down as a um, share of our national income and then subject to that, invest in the things that can boost our productivity and growth as a nation. And key to that is what I call our our green prosperity plans. So investing alongside businesses through a national wealth fund in carbon capture, in green hydrogen, in tidal energy, in uh, electric vehicles. And I think this has sort of numerous benefits uh, and sort of building on what I was saying about Janet Yellen uh, earlier. I mean, first of all, it makes us more secure and resilient as an economy. We've seen what happens when we are left overexposed to countries that don't necessarily share our values for our basic needs in energy. Uh, Second is about securing good jobs, particularly in parts of the country that really need them. And the great thing about the jobs in these industries of the future is that they tend to be located in former industrial areas, coastal communities, where jobs and wages are not as abundant as they are in some parts of the country. And third is about lowering people's energy bills, because in the end, renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy. We just need to get more of it onto the grid. So uh, I think these investments are prudent investments to to secure our economy, to get bills down uh, and to bring good jobs to the UK. And every other country is doing this. But the response to the UK government when the US introduced the Inflation Reduction Act was, this is dangerous. Well, I think what is dangerous is sitting this out whilst other countries are competing for the jobs and industries of the future. And if we carry on like this, we're going to find in 20 or 30 years' time, we're importing our electricity, we're importing our gas, we're importing our cars because we failed at this moment to make the investments here in Britain. Uh, So this is a really important important thing, as I think you can hopefully tell for me. On respect for economics, or I think it's a bit rich for Michael Gove to say that he doesn't respect economists. I uh, wonder what they would say about him. <laughs> but I guess like one of the things that I, like, I wanted to sort of say in this, in this book is that there are loads of really exciting economic ideas out there, but sometimes you might have to look a little bit further for them. And one of the women who I write about in the book is um, Eleanor Ostrom, who was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in economics. And she She won the Nobel Prize in the year of the financial crisis. And her work was looking at how communities could manage shared resources in common. So she wanted to sort of debunk this idea, the tragedy of the commons, this idea that collective assets will always be depleted because people will overuse them. And as a result, you either need to parcel up the resource into privatised pieces of land or you need state control. And she said, no, there's plenty of examples around the world 
of where resources are managed in common by the community. And she studied these and looked at what it took to manage resources in common. And her approach to work as well was very different from, I guess, what people think of in terms of economics, that she worked in collaboration with uh, a group not just of economists, but also of computer scientists, mathematicians, town planners, sociologists, because she felt that the most interesting ideas and research were at the sort of the edges of a subject discipline and working together with others was the best way of finding solutions to real world problems. So I have some sympathy for people that say that the sort of overly mathematical big data sets going into huge computer programs that will tell you the answer you know, isn't always going to deliver the right policy answers. But this book is about drawing out other economists and other ideas. Um, another example, I guess, in this book would be Esther Duflo, the second woman to win the Nobel Prize in uh, economics, who studies development economics and what works at a community level by doing experiments of, of the best way to de- deliver um, de- development uh, aid. So I don't think there is a shortage of good economic ideas out there, but sometimes I think you have to look beyond the sort of mainstream economics. And I think it would be good if young people studying economics, either for undergraduate or master's degree, were exposed to maybe some of the fuller range of economics that is, is out there. If I can add one thing, Rachel, just as a plug for LSE, um, Oriana Bandaria, who's a professor in the economics department, also a woman, is doing amazing work on this, exactly what you were describing pinpointing people who are doing very relevant things as opposed to the economists who are actually churning. So I see some younger people in the audience, so do check out Oriana Bandaria's work. Go ahead. And then the last question on sort of my vision for the country. I think the key thing we need right now is a serious plan for economic growth. The Green Prosperity Plan, for me, is a key part of that. I think there is huge potential in the UK economy to seize jobs and industries of the future, to green our economy, to make it more sustainable, but also so there are more jobs paying wages that families can afford to live on in more parts of the country. But you are not going to get that by government sort of sitting back and allowing the free market to operate alone. I think it is through a partnership approach that we're going to realise our potential as a country. And so that that's why you know, the Green Prosperity Plan, the modern industrial strategy, the planning reforms are all about government and business working together to unlock some of the opportunities. But all of this has got to be built, I guess it's sort of where I started this evening with a sort of quip about trust and quarting. You know, it's got to be built on this rock of economic and fiscal responsibility because when you play fast and loose with the public finances, it is family finances that sort of pay the price. And I sort of described this in a speech that I gave in Washington earlier this year as my idea of secureonomics. And secureonomics is about having more secure family finances, but by achieving that, by building a more secure and more resilient national economy with those good jobs, productivity and opportunities in all parts of the country. And so, you know, hopefully I've set out some of those ideas this evening. Nikita, let's go to you before we go back to the room for a couple of questions from online, please. And if you could say the name of the person, that would be helpful. Yes, I think Jeffrey Thomas is asking about what changes would you suggest in the economics curriculum so that it is more relevant to women and includes contribution of women? Then an anonymous user is asking what advice would you give to someone in Y12, uh, year 12, who is interested in the impact of economic policy in the UK? And 
Amita Gulati is asking, what are your views on the relevance of our world today of Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nation, published in 1776? <laughs> okay, so I think on this issue about changes in the curriculum, I do think it relates to the, the question from the, the lady at the back earlier as well. Economics is very relevant to all of our everyday lives, and yet too much, I think, of what we're taught in economics doesn't relate to that. So the economics of work and family and place, which is how most of us experience the economy, is not the sort of economics 101 that you know, we're taught at, at universities, undergraduate or masters. And also, it's sort of like the better you get at economics and the more you study it, the more narrow it becomes. And I sort of think we need to go broader, not just deeper into things, because I think then you miss out. It's sort of this point I made before about Eleanor Ostrom. You know, her insights was not through becoming more mathematical and bigger computer programs. It was through working with people from across a range of disciplines to actually understand what was happening. And that is economics at its best. How can communities manage shared resources? How can we ensure development aid gets to the people that need it? How can we ensure that in former industrial areas in Britain or the US or wherever uh, have an opportunity to create the jobs in the next industrial revolution? And it's those sorts of questions, I think, that it would be good to expose young people studying economics to those more. Uh, the impact of economic policy, I'm, sure, I'm not sure I totally got the question, but the, to understand the impact of economic policy in the UK, I mean, the last 13 years has just been, in, in my view, and I know I'm biased because I'm a Labour MP, but a sort of a series of errors. I mean, austerity took demand out of the economy at a time when that was not the right economic approach, and you know, maybe if George Osborne had read a bit more Keynes, um, he, he might have known that. But, you know, a lot of the problems we have in the economy today relate back to those years of austerity. We then had Brexit without a plan, and that has, has cost us as an economy, as you know, any economist will tell you. And then we have had recently the sort of turbulence of the experiment in unfunded tax cuts last year, which, you know, although was a, a short experiment, actually the consequences have been very long uh, and still being felt with us today. So, you know, not a great last decade or so. And I hope this, you know, book and what I'm saying this evening gives you an idea, some idea about how I would be attempting to put that right. And then the final question, well, the, the first chapter in the book is about a woman called Harriet Martineau, uh, who is described as uh, a daughter of Adam Smith. So she shared his views, uh, sort of classical liberal uh, economics that Adam Smith wrote about. And again, I, I don't agree with everything that uh, Harriet Martineau did, but what she did really, really well was popularise the ideas of Adam Smith. And she wrote these sort of short parables that were published in book form, but also so in uh, periodicals, magazines that were better selling in their time than the works of John Stuart Mill because they were very accessible. And she said, a bit like what I was sort of trying to say earlier about making economics relevant to people's everyday lives, she said, whether you're an industrialist or a working person, economics matters to you and you need to understand how the economy works. And she tried to popularise some of those ideas into these short parables which were incredibly uh, popular. So 
you know, of course, Adam Smith's work is still relevant today, but as with, you know, Keynes or Friedman or Marshall, I also in this book want to say it's not just the men on the cover that develop these ideas. There are often great women also working on these ideas and we should remember their contribution as well. And start putting them on the cover, which would be quite cool. I I saw loads of hands the last time, so let me... So the gentleman with the piece of paper, Gage. Yes, the the woman in the back blazer. And let's take a fourth from this side, this gentleman who's been waiting. Yeah. Yes, thank you very much. I'm pleased that you mentioned, uh, Rachel, a couple of times, the IRA and the Infrastructure Act. Uh, Do you think that Britain's interest would be better served if we teamed up in some way with some of our European partners, maybe on a variable geometry basis, and work with some of them to try to get better access to the United States, better deals out of them, lobbying for better treatment? Or is it better that Britain just ploughs its own furrow, does its own thing, and so on, now that we've left the EU? And then linked to that, what do you intend to do before the election to try to deepen the relationship that we have with our key European partners? You've been over to Paris, I notice. Any plans for Berlin? Hi, Rachel. Uh, A couple of your questions have touched on what I think is a really interesting divide between the perhaps short-termism of our political system versus the long-term needs of what economics might take us towards. As a prospective chancellor, how might you go about trying to change that perspective from short-termism to long-termism? And do you think that's even possible in Whitehall today? Uh, in a time of global austerity, is it a, a, a foreign aid target of 0.7% compatible with a generous domestic welfare state? Hi, Rachel. Thank you for your time. Um, so given both that you've mentioned yourself, Brexit has had disastrous impacts on the economy, and also Labour can, you know, some could say, be fairly confident that they will not only win this election but future terms, given the catastrophic uh, performance of the Conservatives. Will you be making any efforts to really remedy relationships with the EU after Brexit, or potentially even reverse it in the long run? Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's a great <laughs> <laughs> Biggest reaction of the evening. Yes. Uh, <laughs> On the first question and the US uh, Inflation Reduction Act, I I think that we need a a UK response to the Inflation Reduction Act, which is what um, Labour's Green Prosperity Plan is all about. But we also would want to have greater partnership with our nearest neighbours and trading partners. I'll come on to that a little bit more as well, as well as with the United States. And I guess one of the things that people were worried about in the Inflation Reduction Act was that it was still this sort of America first sort of approach. what the Americans would say was if you're going to be subsidising industry why would you get US taxpayers to subsidise industry in Europe or where the benefits accrue elsewhere but I do think this idea of sort of securonomics or, or building more resilient economies which is what Janet Yellen wants to do as well has got to be based on countries who share each other's values trading and working closer to each other so we all need to wean ourselves off oil and gas produced by countries that don't necessarily share our values but we have to work together in partnership similarly the US is rightly and Europe as well uh, trying to build its own capacity uh, for building uh, chips whether they're for computers or for electric vehicles because we don't want to be over reliant on China for some of our basic needs but that requires countries working together I sort of talk about it as a sort of new form of multilateralism this sort of 
old model of globalization where the cheapest, the quickest, the fastest is always valued the most, I think that that model is long gone. It's outlived its usefulness. Globalization, as we once knew it, is dead. But this new form of multilateralism between countries that share each other's values needs to take its place. And, you know, whether we're inside or outside the European Union, our nearest neighbors and trading partners are still going to be in Europe. But uh, the US market is obviously also incredibly important to us. So as we develop our response to the Inflation Reduction Act and as Europe does theirs, I would like to see more collaboration to build that, those more secure economies amongst countries that share each other's values. And I'll say a little bit more about working with European partners in the answer to the, the final question. The second question is sort of what Keir Starmer would refer to as the problem of sticking plaster politics. The winter comes along, there's a crisis in the NHS, you put some money in, you find a sticking plaster, you just about get through the winter, but next winter it's even worse and you've got to find a bigger sticking plaster. And similarly on the economy. And Keir has spoken about a sort of 10-year plan for national renewal. Now, I mean, that's quite audacious for a party that has lost the last four elections to talk about a 10-year plan of national renewal. But I think it's also honest because we're not going to be able to turn around everything overnight. I'm under no illusions about the scale of the challenge that I would face if I became Chancellor of the Exchequer next year. You know, 1997 for Tony Blair and Gordon Brown was a challenge. You have public services on their knees. But we had a growing economy. And an incoming Labour government, if we are fortunate enough to be in that position next year, will inherit both public services that are on their knees, but also an economy that is on its knees as well. After 13 years of pretty much no growth, uh, still high inflation, uh, interest rates that at the highest level they've been for you know quite some time, putting huge pressure on family finances. So I think you're absolutely right to talk about it in the way that you did and for Labour to be honest with people because, and this is another difference actually, I, I joined the Labour Party in the mid-90s and the first election I campaigned in was 1997 and I think the biggest difference between campaigning then and campaigning now is the cynicism that exists today that just did not exist to the same extent, anything like the same extent in 1997 and I think that's because people feel let down by a number of promises that have been undelivered on. You know, whether that was the promise for all this extra money for the NHS because of Brexit, whether it was the promise of, of levelling up, you know, people feel very let down and there's this feeling that, you know, politics can't make a difference. Now, in that environment, you can either promise big and hope that people overcome their cynicism or you can be honest with people about the time it's going to take but the stepping stones you can take on that journey to reviving our public services and growing the economy and that's the approach that that sort of Kia is taking as leader. On the the question around 0.7%, I talk in in the chapter where I explore the economics of um, Esther Duflo about the importance of development aid and development economics and also the huge difference that it has made, including, you know, in the UK when we achieved the 0.7% of gross national income for international development. And we managed in the last Labour government to have both a welfare state that lifted people out of poverty millions of people out of poverty and at the same time increasing the contribution we made to some of the poorest people in the world so I, I don't buy this idea that you can't have both uh, we want to get back to 0.7% but that will require making sure that our economy grows uh, and so that we have the, the money to be able to recommit to that but I certainly don't buy the idea that you can either be generous at home or, or generous overseas the last co- Labour government showed that you could do both of those things the final question about um, Brexit and you know how many terms the Labour government is going to have on Brexit it is now 
seven and a half years since the country voted to leave the European Union. I voted Remain. If there was a referendum, uh, if that referendum took place again, I, I would have voted Remain again if we could go back in time. But we can't go back in time. We are where we are today. So I accept Brexit as an established reality, but I don't accept that the deal that Boris Johnson secured is the best that we could possibly hope for. There are huge holes in it that an incoming Labour government would seek to fix. We're not going to go back into the single market, the customs union, or bring back free movement of labour, but we are going to take practical steps on uh, professional services, on our cultural industries, on a veterinary deal to improve our trading relations. But most important, um, and this is sort of also you know, building on that, that first question in this round, we want to normalise relations with the European Union, that we're not trying to sort of relive or relitigate those debates of 2016, which were so poisonous and I think you know, did our national politics, but also our economy, uh, a great deal of harm. So, yes, we are beginning to you know, engage on what that might look like. You know, what are some of the sort of uh, you know, discussions that we need to have with our counterparts around the European Union? But I would also just caution against this idea that Labour can now sort of take risks because we are so far ahead in the polls. I think that is the way to defeat you know, we are doing well in the polls, but we're doing well in the polls because we have been incredibly careful. We've been really careful not to make promises that we can't keep. We've been incredibly careful to build a broad coalition where we can bring people together. Uh, and we've got to continue doing that. I compared it into, in an interview recently to uh, a chess game. I was a very keen chess player when I was uh, growing up. And I said, it's a bit like being a rook up or move 30 of a chess match so you're quite a long way into the game and you're rook up you're five points up but you are playing an opponent who usually beats you right, so you cannot <laughs> take your eye off the ball at all or your eye off the chess pieces to get the analogy right uh, and I think that is just really really important you know I have fought four elections in Leeds West and I've won every one of them but in every one of those elections Labour has lost and that means in Leeds West, as a constituency MP, I'm not able to make the difference that I want to make. You know, I've seen our town streets deteriorate. I've seen poverty increase. I've seen schools struggle to pay for the basics. I've seen waiting lists at hospitals. So it's not good enough for me to get elected in Leeds West. Labour needs to have... MPs in more parts of the country and that means no complacency whatsoever. We lose too often. The Tories will do everything they can to hold on to power and we're not going to fall into the trap of saying, oh, we can afford to you know, upset some people here, alienate some people there. We're sticking to this path of building a broad coalition and trying to do something that only three Labour leaders have ever done. Attlee, Wilson and Blair, which is win from opposition. In our 120-year history, Labour's only done that three times. I want Keir to be the fourth person to do that. Fantastic. So I'm conscious that we're coming to the end of time, so I'm going to gather three questions, so very, very brief, and I am going to bias women who have had less chance to speak this evening. So the woman with her hand up in the middle, the woman in blue, and can we go for the gentleman in the very back, please? Yes, go ahead. Oh, hi, Rachel. Really fantastic presentation. I'm just curious, five years on uh, from now, so 2028, what will be the chapter that the fingers crossed Chancellor Rachel Reeves will be writing about herself <laughs> <laughs> um, and we have the woman here yes 
Um, yes, yeah, so should Labour win the next election? I know that the IFS VAT on school fees report predicts a net gain of up to £1.5 billion per annum. Um, so I was wondering, is consideration being given to taxing other services with similarly perceived inelastic demand and taxpayer-funded alternatives such as private health care? That's a good question. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for being here tonight. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, if you could uh, talk a little bit about what Labour could do to help um, young families, uh, specifically women with maternity leave and nursery costs. Uh, ready? Yeah. Um, great. Brilliant um, questions. Uh, I, I, don't really know. I, I, I don't really know if I want to ask a question about what someone would write or what I would write on me. But in the introduction of the book, I tell us a sort of story which I'll just sort of retell now. And it's a family who I met last spring um, in Worthing on the south coast of England. And it was a, a mum and a dad. And between them, they worked five jobs between them. But as a family, they only had half a day a week together. And they had to work those five jobs to be able to pay all the bills, to pay the rent and to you know, keep the family going. They obviously were really struggling with balancing work and family life. And the mum said to me, you just wonder whether you're doing something wrong. And that was very, very powerful because she was doing nothing wrong. She was doing everything right. Uh, they were trying to support themselves and trying to have a, a family life. But there is something profoundly wrong in the British economy when you've got working people having to work so many hours just to be able to afford the basics. And she said that dream of owning your own home was slipping further out of reach. What I would like to be remembered for, if I have the opportunity to be Chancellor, is to rebuild those family finances of ordinary working people so that people can work and also bring up a family and to be able to realise some of those basic dreams, owning your own home, having a family holiday, being able to spend time together, doing a job that is fulfilling, that you have some security and that you can progress in. And for too many people in Britain today, that is not the case. And I will know whether I've been successful as Chancellor in whether there are more families able to live those sorts of lives than the sort of story that I've just told about that family uh, in Worthing. On the second question... So the Institute of Fiscal Studies did some analysis of one of Labour's policies, which is to um, get rid of the loophole whereby private schools don't pay VAT and business rates. And they you know, backed up our numbers that it would bring in £1.4 billion, I think, uh, pounds a, a year, and we would use that money to fund the 93% children in our state schools. And uh, I, I noticed recently that uh, the Education Secretary, Gillian Keegan, said after the sort of rack concrete sort of fiasco in our schools that there were lots of children who were very happy to be taught in porter cabins rather than in classrooms well as somebody who went to school in the 80s and 90s who was taught in a porter cabin because there were more students than there was space at my school I'm very happy to have a debate with Rishi Sunak and Gillian Keegan about who's more aspirational for our children they say it's not aspirational to put VAT on school fees I say it is not aspirational to allow 93% of kids in our state schools to be treated in the way that they have been after 13 years of Conservative government and that's why we will go ahead with that policy. Um, on the fa final question, uh, it's a really great way to sort of end the evening about how we would help families and how we would help people with nursery costs because often when chancellors or prime ministers want to make an intervention or announce a policy on how they're going to boost growth and productivity in the economy, 
they they do something uh, which is sort of like in the sort of rule book of chancellors and prime ministers and ones that want to do those jobs. And they basically they put on a high vis jacket and a hard hat and they go to a building site. Now, if you want an example of this, I did it last week. Uh, <laughs> And we go to those places and we say, if I am Chancellor, we are going to build more stuff and that will boost our growth and productivity. And that's not wrong, it will do. But there's also other things that will boost our growth and productivity. And one of them is having a childcare system that works properly. Because there are too many women, and it is particularly women, although I recognise that it is also uh, fathers as well, who struggle to access the jobs that they want to do and they can do because they can't find childcare to work around those jobs. And so they take a job that's closer to home rather than doing the commute. Uh, They don't take the extra hours because uh, it means they'd have to find someone to look after the kids a bit later. They don't take the promotion because they don't know how they're going to be able to balance work and family life. And it is predominantly women who pay this price. And it's why the gender pay gap really opens up when men and women are in their 30s. Because up until then, you know, the gender pay gap is, is not such a big deal anymore, but it really opens up in the 30s and it actually opens up even more than in the 50s or in the 60s where a lot of women will uh, give up work or go part-time to either look after elderly parents because the social care system's not working or help their children by looking after the grandchildren. And so we need social infrastructure, social fabric in Britain that works better. And so investing in childcare is not only the right thing to do, in terms of early years development etc but it is also good for the economy right now because it frees up more parents and particularly more women to work so you know maybe I should do a few more of those visits to the children's centre and to the nursery and explain how that will boost productivity because it will and not just those hard hat uh, high vis visits I guess there's a sort of final thing I, I would say you know this this book is about you know trying to show the amazing influence and the amazing work of some fantastic women in economics and I want people to feel optimistic about the future Um, you know we still have a gender pay gap of 15% uh, but there are things that we can do to close that there are now three women that have won the Nobel Prize for economics and the last one Claudia Golding was the first to win it in her own right not alongside uh, any man when I was born in 1979 there were 19 women out of 615 MPs in Parliament when I became an MP in 2010 there were 120 women MPs out of 650 and there are now more than 220 so there's still a long way to go still only a third of parliamentarians are women but we've made huge progress in my lifetime and in my working career in politics in economics in uh, academia in many other areas but there are still battles to fight there are still glass ceilings to smash and I hope that the stories of some of these women in this book will inspire a, a new generation of women starting out in the career to think what is possible and also to give everybody a broader insight of what economics can do and can achieve and how it's influenced me on my journey so far and the journey that I hope to continue to make. Thank you.
thank you so much for clapping before I asked you to. Can I ask for a couple of uh, things? So Rachel isn't going to run and leave. She needs to get out to do a book signing. So if you could stay seated, that would be fantastic. We'll be back here in the LSE on Thursday night talking about AI and the future of work. So if I can entice you to come to that event, it would be amazing. For me, the one thing that I'm taking away from tonight, Rachel, is a lot of optimism. And as our alumni, I'm hoping in three or four years, we will welcome you back as the woman who made modern Britain productive. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.